like a couple years ago, we were in a sermon series in the book of Mark, and I am going back to the book of Mark, but I wanted to tell you this, is that I, I really do believe that it's important to have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. And that's no excuse. I mean, to be really honest with you, I had already written my message on Mark chapter 1, verse 21 through 28. I spent hours. The notes are already done. The bulletin inserts already finished. It would have just been easier for me to come and, and preach that. And I'm excited about it. You know, it's an awesome message. I, I even like the title, you know. But I, I learned a lot. I want to share that with you. But I want to have ears to hear. I think that's one of the greatest things that we can do in these days. And I want to encourage you toward that end, as, of course. So we all can hear the Holy Spirit if he lives in us. Not just me for you, but us together as the body of Christ. And as I'm waiting on God and as I'm praying, as, I, as I'm listening, the Lord has been speaking to me a lot about fear and faith. And I have preached a lot on fear, a lot on faith for sure. And on Wednesday nights, I've been preaching on freedom. I've just been going after freedom, what it means to be free, what Jesus has paid for, how we walk in freedom, how we live in freedom, how we accept no less than freedom. I've been preaching on that, and I inevitably come to these strongholds that we often have in our lives. And one of the major strongholds that we have is the stronghold of fear. And God not only wants to help us to overcome that, but walk in an opposite spirit. And so today, I want to share with you a message that I'm calling Discerning and Dealing with Fear. And as I do share this with you, let me just say, I am going to start a conversation. I am not going to finish it. I cannot, nor can you, open up an issue like this and somehow have a complete package. And so have some grace on what I'm not able to share. There is no way I'm going to get through the notes that I put in here because I have more scriptures on here than I'm going to put up there. I just need you to know that as we open up this conversation that this is an issue that I think we must deal with in the days that we're living. In fact, I think one of the greatest enemies that we are facing right now, whether we can acknowledge it or discern it or not, is the issue of fear. And I pray that what I have to share with you today is helpful in your life, even where it may go undetected. We're asking God to give us a greater level of discernment. And so I'm going to use 1 Kings chapter 19. It's a well-known passage, uh, but I think it's going to be very, very helpful. When we talk about fear, what is it that we mean? It's a very important question to answer, and I want to give you two definitions from the dictionary, and we will go farther than that, but it's important to start there. And the first definition is fear is a feeling of anxiety that is caused by the presence of danger. And typically what we're talking about, it's this internal sense that we have that's triggered by whether a perceived danger or in reality, there is a danger in front of us. And so that's one definition. The second definition would be a feeling of apprehension or concern that fosters internal anxiety. And so this would go a little bit further in a definition by saying fear is sort of this internal sense, which we just defined, but it creates this capacity to foster an internal condition that continues to repeat itself, or it fosters a certain kind of activity. It doesn't just give us a feeling, but it causes us or motivates us to act on it. So fear is this multifaceted, very complex type of thing. And, and let me just say, sometimes in church, what we will do, particularly if we've been a little touched by the Word of Faith movement, uh, we will say, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have any fear, and fear is not of God. And, and, and that's true. The Bible condemns destructive fear. 
But there are different kinds of fear, and we need to just kind of have a level head about this. Fear can be rational, and fear can be irrational. Uh, Fear can be healthy, and fear can be destructive. And let me explain. Um, You should have a healthy fear when you're walking on 21st Avenue, and and a bus drives by, and you have a sense of fear not to step out into the road. Everybody say amen. I mean, if you do that, it might be a good proposition in that you're going to meet Jesus immediately, but we want you to not go before your time. And so, in a sense, the word fear can be used in a healthy way that we don't want to step out into the road. The Bible's not talking about that. When it condemns fear, it's not talking about this, this healthy sense of, of resisting imminent danger. We all want you to have that, okay? But fear can also be, and it very often is, particularly what the Bible talks about, it can be very destructive in that it paralyzes us from stepping out and living the life that God has called us to. And therefore, it is irrational and it's destructive. And and so let me put it into terms that make sense to me, or this is the way that I hear it in my head. Fear can be your servant, but it must not be your master. Fear can serve you to stop you from stepping out into the road, but it cannot be your master telling you what to do, telling you how to live, telling you who you are, and telling you how to be. Fear cannot dominate us, and that's what the Bible would say many, many times. Often where we see fear is in extremes. It's either fight or it's flight. But when we talk about it, we tend to think of it usually in cowardice terms, like a person is living in fear when they're afraid to do anything or step out. That's the way that we typically identify it, but it's so much more than than that. The definition that I often use about fear is fear is a false projection of the future. It's a false projection of the future. If we walk around living in what we think we know about the future, we will live in such a way that is outside of what God has for our lives because we are, we are living based on what we think we know instead of what is actually true. And this is something that I caught a person in yesterday. I told the story last night. I want to tell it again. It's very simple. But I was having a conversation with someone, and as we were talking about the world today that we're living in, and it seems like we would tend to think that the world's getting bad. You know, I could summarize most of these conversations. Bad, 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 real bad, even more bad than it used to be, and it was bad, (laughs) sort of how it sounds. And as we're talking and I was acknowledging, yes, there are things that are bad, very bad in the world that we're living in. And it seems to increase, of course. And this person said, you know, and it's just going to keep getting like this. And I said, how do you know that? Now, I want to I stop you for a second and, and, and pay attention to this part. How do you and I know that the world isn't just going to turn around tomorrow? How do you and I know that our city that our state, that our country, and the nations of the world might not turn around tomorrow. How do we know that? I mean, do you have a prophetic word? Are you God? No, no, no. I mean, you as in us. Come on, me too. But this is what fear will speak through our lives 
and we are sowing into our action, whether we believe, see it or not, it is that subtle thing that, that finds residence in our soul and it finds expression through our words. And we are offering, we are often catering it. We're coddling it. We're giving fear a pillow in our life to get a little more comfortable inside of our soul. And I, I just want to tell you today, we cannot be aiding and abetting the fugitive of fear to run around in our thought life and speak to us and, and even speak through us. We have to grab a hold of fear and choke it out. I know these are extreme. You like that? Don't aid and abet the fugitive of fear running around in your... Can you see like a little guy running around in your thought life? <laughs> you know, it's a pretty... Pretty bad. All right. Welcome to my, uh, all right. (laughs) But that's what it is. It's this thing that wants to condemn us, stop us before we step out. Uh, it, It wants to cut off all of our roads of faith into the future of what God has for us. It wants to suppress us. It wants to silence us. It wants us to get a sit, to sit down when we need to stand up. It wants to, to stop speaking when we need to speak up. Fear is constantly trying to put a mute over our, our life, silence us, and tell us how to be and who to be. And we cannot allow fear to run rampant in our lives. So we first must discern it. And I want to say something to you today that I think is really important in this particular conversation about fear. I won't get to everything, but this is important. I personally believe that fear is hard to discern. And that's why, I mean, men in particular, if you say, what are you afraid of? Guys are like, I'm not afraid of anything. (laughs) Did you like that? No, because we sort of have to have this reaction, like, I'm not afraid of anything. And usually when we over-assert this uh, high level of confidence, it is a window into our insecurity. But I won't go into the psychology of all that. I'm just saying that oftentimes it's hiding. And it's it's manifested in extremes, but it, it will absolutely take up residence in our soul. And when you most see it is when your life starts get shaken, when your life gets shaken. When your life gets shaken, it starts to come out. And the thing that you said wasn't there, all of a sudden, oh, where did that come from? It came from the stuff on the outside. Yeah, but the outside is supposed to prompt what's on the inside to come out of you. And if what's on the inside comes out of you, looks like fear, friends, guess what? It was there. Just because it was undetected and you couldn't discern it doesn't mean it wasn't there. It took something to trigger it. And what God wants to do is as it comes up, we grab hold of it and through faith and through the study of his word and the truth of God, we not only lay hold of that thing, but we put it under our feet, that we're able to discern fear's presence in our lives. And so I want to use this passage in 1 Kings 19 to help us understand that it's a very well-known passage, but I do have to summarize 1 Kings 18 because it won't make sense unless I do. So in 1 Kings 18, we can imagine that this is a time in Israel's history that is very difficult spiritually and naturally. They, they have been going through a three-year famine. And a three-year famine, vegetation dies, animals are dying, people are dying. There's no food, there's no water. Uh, and when you have no food and water, life cannot exist for a long time period of time. And so Israel has sunken to an all-time low as they're worshiping Baal and Asherah and Ashtoreth and these gods of Canaan. They're they're worshiping them. And we know that Ahab is the king of Israel at this time, and he is the worst king. In 1 Kings 16.33, it says this about him. 
This is the tagline at the end of his email. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. I mean, that's his claim to fame. That's the tagline when he sends the email, like, I am the worst king ever. Ahab married a heathen princess named Jezebel who basically controlled him. Jezebel established a temple for the god Baal, the heathen god Baal in Samaria, and she had her prophets tear down all the altars of the Lord throughout Israel. Now, this was a horrible time uh, to be alive in that people were literally losing everything. In the midst of this, God raises up a man named Elijah as a prophet, and he comes onto the scene and he proposes a contest between the god Baal and Yahweh, the true God of Israel. And he meets up with Ahab and he tells him to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring all of the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. I want you to gather all of your false prophets and all of Israel, it says, gathers on this mountain to have this showdown between whose God is really God. And so Elijah provokes them to each build an altar and they put an ox on the altar and they, Elijah douses his with water just to make sure that everyone knows there's no trickery here. But basically says, you call on your God, I'll call on my God, and the God that answers by fire is God. And so they go first, they start to call on their gods and dance around and cut themselves and have some type of ritual party, and nothing happens. And then Elijah sort of steps up, and he calls on Yahweh, and fire from heaven comes and falls on the altar and burns up everything, consumes it. Even the water gets consumed in this holy flame that God sends from heaven. And right after this, Elijah tells the people of Israel, as they're awed and amazed by what they've just seen, the supernatural deal, he says, kill them. That's <laughs> not how you deal with your enemies. And thank God there's a New Testament that says, love your enemies. But he says, kill them. And so they kill all the false prophets, 850 prophets, the nation of Israel. They just take care of them right there. And so now Elijah speaks to Ahab, and they both head to Jezreel and and as they get there, or as Elijah gets there, this is where 1 Kings 19 begins. So let me read it here, verse 1 through 14. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, or I don't kill you. Elijah was afraid. Everybody say afraid. You've got to get this part. This is, a real, this is a key. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he, be, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush and sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. And this is what he says. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, and he ate and he drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what? Are you doing here, Elijah? 
And Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. That's how I hear it in my heart. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. Elijah heard it, and he pulled his cloak over his face. He went out, and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him one more time, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replies a second time the same thing that he said. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, those guys, I want to exaggerate, those guys, everyone but me, have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword, and I'm the only one you got left. And now, Lord, they're trying to kill me too, in case you didn't know. (laughs) This is the word of the Lord. After this happens, God gives him marching orders, which is the end of his ministry. I want you to go and anoint a new king, and I want you to go and anoint a new prophet. Basically, his chapter is done, and God wants him to go out and set up for the next prophet and king. And that's what happens right after this. God doesn't even address some of these things. But I I want to use this story to help us with a couple things. I won't finish them all, but I want to help us identify fear. I want to help us confront fear and conquer fear. I won't get to the third one. But we must identify fear. Now listen to this. When Elijah got to Jezreel, he received a note from Jezebel stating that she was going to kill him. Now this is very, very important because we understand that in verse 3, it says, he was afraid and he ran. Here's a guy who literally had the greatest victory, one of the greatest victories that you can see in Scripture. He had a confrontation. He put himself into a situation where God literally had to show up or he was dead. He he inserted himself into a scenario that is only going to go one of two ways. You're either going to have God show up or you're going to die. That's how it's going to work. And he has an incredible victory. He's flying high on that victory. He gets to Jezreel. And I think it's safe to assume that he believed that God was going to deal with Ahab and Jezebel. I believe that he thought that God was going to do something. When he gets there, either he recognizes that that anointing isn't there or he recognizes that God hasn't done something or he has some type of disillusionment where the nation of Israel hasn't necessarily gathered against the king. Something is occurring in his heart and he gets a note from Queen Jezebel that says, I'm going to kill you. And he goes, ah! Went from victory to running. And so he runs 40 days and 40 nights. All through that, he has suicidal thoughts. He wants to die. He's disillusioned. He's discouraged. And God, in verse 9, asks him a question when he gets to Mount Horeb 40 days later. He asks him, why are you here? What a great question. (laughs) God's not looking for the information. He already knows why he is there. But God wants to ask him a question so that Elijah can know why he's there. And he asks him the question, and Elijah responds, I have been very zealous. I, God, have been very zealous because I'm pretty amazing. I'm exaggerating, but I think it's fair. 
The sons of Israel, everyone else has forsaken your covenant. They don't care. They torn down all your altars. They killed every prophet with the sword. And I'm the only one left. I mean, God had just shown up for Elijah. Okay, you got it. Have you ever been in a, in a time where God has just shown up for you and the next response that you have is not the faith that you thought you would have that you would carry into this new season from the last one? You went from the height of the mountaintop and now all of a sudden you're at the lowest point of the valley and you don't have the faith that you should have because of what you just saw God do? And you know what that does to your soul? Because you know that you should be living in faith. You know that you should expect God to show up. You know that it's time for God to do what God does. And you just saw him do it, but you can't muster up the faith and the courage to stand in that place like you ought to. And this is where Elijah is. And it's why he says to God, would you just kill me? I'm no better than my ancestors. Just take my life. The suicidal thoughts start entering in, and that's really low. That's, you get to a really low place, and some of us have had those thoughts before. Get to that place, right? But Elijah cannot recognize that he is where he is because of fear. And I think this happens, that there's this voice of fear that compels us to do things that we otherwise would not do, to think things that we otherwise would not think, or even say things out of our mouth. And, and God wants to help us identify that. Another word for it would be diagnose it. We've got to be able to diagnose it. You cannot have a proper prognosis unless you truly have the right diagnosis. I mean, if you think something's wrong that's not wrong, it doesn't matter how many times or how, how often or how much energy you put to fixing the thing that's not broken. It doesn't matter. I mean, it just doesn't seem to work. Why would you spend any energy trying to fix something that's not broken? If you can't properly diagnose something, you're not dealing with it. That's for sure. And I think fear is so sophisticated at times in our lives. Like with Elijah, this is a picture. It's a window into somebody's soul who's dealing with a thing, but he cannot see that fear is motivating him. It's motivating him to, to get all the way to where he is, to have suicidal thoughts, to think things that you would not think the prophet of God. Elijah, the prophet of God, who prayed big prayers and saw a big God do great things. You would not think that this man would be in this place, and yet he is. And I think that's important for us to sort of recognize some things, therefore, about fear. Fear will either motivate us, it'll compel us to an action that we otherwise would not take, or it will dominate us. It will cause us to cower or avoid a situation. Some of us are in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time because fear is motivating us in our lives. You know, the missing component in the story, at least the way that I see it, is when Elijah got to Jezreel, he could have and should have just said, God, what do you want me to do now? Our relationship with God when we face situations in our life is really what matters the most. What does the Bible say and how is the Holy Spirit leading me? Because if we're living by anything else, we end up doing stuff that we're not supposed to be doing. Saying things we're not supposed to be saying. Thinking things that we're not supposed to be thinking. Fear will drive us to these extremes. So whatever part of that spectrum that we're on, it can be fear motivating and dominating us in those seasons. And God wants us to get to a place of faith. And that simply means this, to know God, to believe his word, to know what his word says in this season, and literally follow it. Yeah, we're going to struggle. Yeah, we're going to feel things. Yes, we're going to get triggered by situations and circumstances, and we're going to have to deal with it. But first, we have to even discern it. And I think that can be the hardest part. 
for us to actually acknowledge, I've got some fear about the future. I've got some fear about my, what's going on with my children. I've got some fear about what's happening in our home. I've got some fear about what's happening in our world or in our country. I've got some fear about how these things are playing out. I've got some fear about whether or not I'll be enough for tomorrow. I've got some fear. But if we can't simply just say it, we're never going to deal with it. You can't confront what you're not acknowledging. You know, denial has never been our friend, and it won't be our friend, especially in these times. Now, there are many different fears, of course. It's a complex issue. I'm just going to tag a few of them. One of the main fears that we face is the fear of death. Now, if you're looking at those notes, it's Mark 440. It's not Matthew. I apologize. That's my fault. Please don't send me a message. But I love the fact that we're a Bible-believing church because there were a couple people that sent me a message last night. Thank you, by the way. And, uh, and we're a Bible-believing church because people will follow up on the references and tell you, Pastor Ben, I don't think you meant Matthew 440. There is no Matthew 440. So unless you have a Bible I don't have, you know, the <laughs> all right. The fear of death, the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2, write down Hebrews chapter 2 if you have a pen. That's a great, there's a great passage in there about the fear of death. Um, we're literally living in a pandemic Okay. Now, regardless of what you think about that, don't smirk, don't sneer, just for a second. We're living in a pandemic. We've seen a lot of people die from this particular thing. We've seen people die from a lot of things over the last year and a half as well. But we, in this generation, you are living in a time, we are living in a time that history books are going to be written about. We are. We're living in that right now. And how we live in this time matters a lot, a lot more than we realize. And we cannot waste our response on anything other than what God wants us to do right now. We can't. Don't waste it right now. We have to be about God's business. Very important. And what I've recognized in this season is that there is a lot of fear of death. Now, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm not saying that, that public health isn't a thing. And I, I think it's important that we understand public health. I think it's important that we understand health and what that looks like for each one of us. And in our church, we've, we've talked about each person needs to decide for their own family because truthfully, you have to care for yourself more than anybody, expecting anybody else other than God to, to really care for you in that way. It's very important, right? And so we, we've talked a little bit about that, but, but fear doesn't look like somebody like trying to have a few public health measures in their life. That's, that's, that's an easy one to pick off. Fear can look like what's motivating us to react and respond to the things that we think are wrong in our world as well. Fear can very much be control. When we have the fear of death, it doesn't just look like cowardice. Sometimes it looks like a compelling and the way that we go about living as a, as a result of that. But let me just make a comment that seems kind of morbid. We're all going to die. I want you to know that. You are going to, at some point, you are going to die, physically speaking. We preach the gospel of salvation unto eternity. And here's my problem with the days in which we're living. I, I'm, I'm all for public health to a degree that's reasonable. Absolutely. But when Christians go so far to interpret what love means in this season, where it does not include us being the legitimate witness of that which saves the soul unto eternity, something is wrong in the church. If we define love by simply public health measures and not us sharing the spiritual cure to spiritual cancer, something has shifted in the church that is, quite frankly, evil. If we walk around with that which heals people and are unwilling, unable, or fearful 
to lovingly share what God has given to us, knowing every person is going to die. There is a timestamp on our life, and as morbid as that sounds, it is the truth. So the fear of death, in one sense, to have a concern about public health is very rational. We don't want to go before our time. I was talking to a friend of mine from a southern state, and I was telling him about how Washington... Do you guys mind if I talk about COVID stuff for a while? Fine, sounds good. So, (laughs) save the emails. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine, I was telling him about how Washington is. Now, you may not know this unless you travel, but we live in a bubble in Washington. We live in a bubble. It's in, in, it takes a lot to recognize that, but when you go to another state, like if you go to Texas, big difference, okay? You go to Atlanta, big difference, all right? So I've got friends, pastor friends in different states, and I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was talking about how some of the people in his church are reacting to COVID. And some of it is he's concerned on the other end of the spectrum. We're, a lot of people I talk to in Washington are always like, you know, government overreach, all this, you know, all that, okay? But then my friends on the other side of the spectrum where he's got people, literally a person in his church said this. It said, I could walk through a room of people that everyone has COVID, no mask on, no concern, touching everybody doing this, and I would never get it. Bless God, because I got faith. That same man is in the hospital dying right now. Yeah, that's the truth. That same man. So my statement in this season is we need to steward the natural and contend for the supernatural. Both are very important right now. And what we notice is fear is on both sides of the spectrum. Fear is manifested in both extremes. It manifests in the person that's like, this is a hoax and I don't care. And, you know, they don't, all of a sudden it's like this anarchy spirit where public health doesn't even matter. And, and then they claim that's faith. I actually think that's fear. I think it's fear. I think a lot of what happens is we get afraid of what's going to happen in our country. We get afraid of what's going to go on. We get afraid of how this is going to play out. And so as a result of that, we go, I'm going to take a stand and I'm going to do all this stuff and I'm going to make sure my voice is heard. But we don't realize we're still literally living out of fear right there because we're not responding to the word of God. We're not doing what the Lord is saying right now. We're reacting to the fear that we have. Fear can look like avoidance and cowardice and fear can look by being compelled and motivated toward an action. Isn't that amazing? But sometimes we don't realize that it's the very thing motivating us. The question is, what is God saying and what does he want us to do? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question today because the Bible is actually very clear. No matter what season that we're in, but the fear of death is, is very real. Christians need to settle that fear of death, not to live negligent, but to live spiritual. And this means a lot of things. I wish I could unpack it. I don't have the time. In fact, I just have very little time right now. So the second service, I'll just have to preach part two. (laughs) The fear of losing something. What about the fear of losing freedom or our way of life or the fear of losing our conveniences? I, I think today, I think more people are afraid of losing their conveniences. And that fear is motivating us to do a lot of things that are not Christian, honestly. I mean, are we, what are we really afraid of, you know? And this is where I catch people because they'll make comments like, you know, this is what's going to happen. And I go, how do you know that? And, and, and when there's a lack of prayer, you know you're giving yourself to something. I mean, we pray, Watchman Nee would say, if Christians have such a big God, why do they pray such small prayers? And this is it's the truth, isn't it? It's like we, we sort of reduce uh, our spiritual life down to what we can say and do and what we can control, and what we can compel. We don't see a big God in the midst of a dark day. Why not? 
Why not? God is a big God, and he can change a nation in a day. Do you believe that? I've seen it. I've read it in the book of Jonah. He did it. In a day, God changed the whole nation. He's a big God, and he wants to do big things, and he needs people to believe him and not to be fearful on either side of the spectrum. We have the fear of losing something, the fear of tomorrow, the fear of being alone, the fear of sickness, personal health, or others. A lot of scriptures about that. The fear of people, the Bible calls it the fear of man. It says in Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man is a trap. It really is when we're afraid of what others think or what they'll say or what they'll do in response to our love. I would never preach in front of anybody if, I, if the fear of man was gripping me. I'm not saying I don't ever feel that thing. I do. I feel that. You know, I have to de- we all have to deal with it. We all will experience it. You have to deal with it. That's not wrong to feel it, but it's what you do with it when you can recognize it. And a lot of times if we're saying, I don't have it, we're, that's the way we're dealing with it. We're acting like it's not present. When in reality, a humble heart would say, Lord, is there something in me that doesn't look like you in this area? Am I being motivated, compelled, or am I cowering to something when I really need to be faithful and, and not fearful? Is there something there that I'm not seeing? Would you help me to see it? I can tell you this, whether it looks controlling or cowardice, it doesn't look Christ-like. Fear doesn't lead us down the right roads. The second thing I want to talk to you about is we need to first discern it, diagnose it, so that we can confront it. We have to confront fear. And I'll only go so far here, but let me just say a couple things. I believe God was speaking to Elijah to help him see it so he could confront it. He wanted Elijah to come to this place where he could look at where he was. Why are you here? Now, what a good question to ask yourself today. Why are you where you are? Why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you feeling the way you're feeling right now? And do those line up with the purposes and the person of Christ? Do they? And if they don't, maybe there's a root system that God's like, I want you to pull that out in this season. It's come to the surface, and I want you to pull it out. I want you to uproot this thing because I've, I want to plant something better in your life. Why are you here? Why are you in this season where you are? To confront fear in our lives, it means we oppose it, we resist it, we deal with it, we don't allow it to continue. And this is why hundreds of times in the Bible you'll hear this command, do not fear. The reason you hear it hundreds of times is because we fear. And so we have to hear right alongside the challenges of our day, do not fear. And he'll baptize our mind, wash over our mind with a greater dimension of faith. We have to reach higher into God to receive what we need for the season that we're in in and not give ourselves to those automatic feelings or triggers that sort of come out of us when situations arise. One of the things I was doing last night as I was two nights ago now, I was talking to my wife and I said to Bridget, um, how have you struggled with fear in your life? And it's really not fair to do to your spouse when you've spent like 15 hours in this issue of, uh, of fear in the Bible. I've been meditating on it and I've, I've got literally, I've got like seven passages right here that I, I don't know what I'm going to do with today, but... Um, But I asked her this question, and she went to the normal things that you would go to if I asked you and you didn't have time to think about it. She went to the, you know, the fear of public speaking, all that kind of stuff, right? That's, those are fears that are there. And I said, no, we all have those, but what about like fears that sort of grip you and potentially could stop you from doing what God wants you to do in your life? And uh, she said what she should have said, that's not fair that you asked me after you've been thinking about this for a long time, which, and she was absolutely right. But as we had a conversation, 
what came to the surface for the both of us was the fear that we have for our children at times. So we've raised, we've got two sets, we've gone through two sets of teenagers now, and the first time we raised teenagers, we were raising them right with scripture, prayer, and worship, and family devotions, and all the stuff you should do, but then all of a sudden our kids start going a different path. And the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and all the feelings that you have, the what did I do wrong and what should I be doing right now and all those, all the, and you're afraid of what your kids are going to become. You're afraid of what your kids are going to do. You're afraid of them turning out a certain way and, and, it, and it sort of grips you. And even our reactions, even our prayers are prayers of fear sometimes and not prayers of faith. Because we're like, Lord, just keep them from where they should be. And, 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 and you start to like live out of fear. And, and this is where a parent can be too controlling. So what does fear look like in the life of a parent at times like this? It can look like controlling. So you start to build these unnecessary boundaries. And instead of investing your energy and equipping them and training them up in the way that they should go and spending more time with them, you try to uh, build a really strong fence so that they won't get out there and experience the world that is inevitably coming to their world. At some point, this is why a lot of our teenagers, when they go to college, if they're not properly equipped and have that time to give their hearts to the Lord, they go to college and the intellectual side of it will just try to take them, right? Because they maybe aren't equipped for it. And we believe for better things for our young people, but this really does happen. This happens in the world. And it could be other things as well, medicating their pain and whatnot. But this is what we tried to do. We tried to control our kids. We were like, uh, it sounded like a great proposition. If I just control you, and you wouldn't say it this way, but follow where I'm going, okay? (laughs) Now I can look back and judge myself and you can uh, enjoy that. But I can remember stories. I I would love to have Isaiah come and he'll, he'll tell you about it. But I can remember stories where we didn't know one time where our son was. And so without having like the iPhone locator, that's really a better, we're living in a better world today. (laughs) Oh, this is getting bad. So I found out where he was and I went up to the door of his friend's house and I knocked on the door and I don't know if they were doing a party or what they were doing, but I just insert myself into situations with no problem at all. I, I just don't care. I don't care. I really don't. And he'll tell you that. You can ask both my wife and my son. It's great. Um, But I come from somewhere. Bridget and I have a past. And we come from some dark places, and God delivered us into his glorious light. So when you come from somewhere, you don't want that to be repeated in your children. And I had this picture in my mind, like you try to, have you ever watched a movie where um, they're going to rob like a bank or a vault of some kind, and one of the very skilled robbers goes to the video line and clips the feed, and then they put a different feed where they loop what happened to the past, you know? And so, uh, so the person that's watching and monitoring the vault can't see what's happening in real time. And I think often that's what we do when we're trying to control the situation is we're trying to clip the reality feed and we're trying, does this even make sense? I don't know. But we're trying to plug in this picture that we want to be seen and to happen. So we're trying to control what goes on in our kids' lives and make sure that nothing happens that happened in our life. We don't, we, we don't want to live in the reality feed. We want to sort of splice that, that, that wire and, and feed it the way that we think it, it should be or we want it to be seen. And you can't do that. Has anybody else learned that you just can't control your life like that? That's why trusting God is the option. Trusting God. 
believing in God, loving God, knowing God. And, and so often what we try to do is we try to control our kids. We try to control our future. We try to control our reality. We try to control what other people say. That's why people won't interact with others because if I can't control what you say, it doesn't make me feel safe. So I'm only going to be around people that I, be, that I agree with and that I like so I can live in my safety. Uh-oh. Friends, this is fear. This is fear for a lot of conservative Christians, is I don't want to talk to these people, and fear for the liberal Christians, I don't want to talk to these people, because you're afraid. You're afraid of hearing other thoughts. You're afraid of having a conversation that differs from what you know to speak about. That's what we deal with. These things are not righteous. They are fear. And they're keeping us from being who God wants us to be and saying what God wants us to say and interacting in a world that's, that needs what we've got. It's fear. So often we're on one side or the other. You see it on both sides of the aisle. You see it on both sides of the issues. You see it on both sides of the perspective. And so I think for us, it's absolutely essential that we ask the question to the Lord and of his word, what am I supposed to be doing in this season? What does it look like to follow you right now? Is there fear in my life? Will you help me to identify it? Will you help me to confront it? And when you confront fear in your life, when you see it for what it is, it doesn't make it go away. It just makes you more brave. God increases the bravery in our life to take more steps down a road that we otherwise wouldn't go down because fear was telling us not to. Fear was holding us back from the things that are often the most fruitful in our future. We just don't see it right now. Christians have to be brave in the days that we're in so that we can reach people with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is going to take a type of bravery that I don't think we've had before. It's going to take a type of courage that I don't think any of us have quite mustered up before. And let's stop acting like we're living there and start getting desperate for God where we are so that we can lay hold of something new. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Our knowledge of what we know about God should be operative in this season, but it shouldn't make us think that we're the most spiritual people. It should be the substance and the foundation for our life, not just things that are in our, in our head. Let's confront that fear. This is what David said as I close. He said this in the 27th Psalm. He starts his psalm by saying this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Listen to how he closes the psalm. I would have despaired, that means be hopeless. I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If you want to know my heart, this scripture was prophesied. The first prophecy that I ever got was this scripture. I sign every book with it. Uh, it, it is stamped on my soul. It's etched in my soul. Some will call me the optimist and all of that. No, no, man, listen. I live in reality land, but this scripture is stamped on my soul. I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see. I would have been hopeless had I not believed that I would see something. Friends, we've got to give ourselves to God in such a way that we believe that we are going to see what we are not seeing. We've got to have eyes of faith and not be compelled and dominated by fear. I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see 
the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. God wants to give us something in the season. We cannot resist it by fear, calling that reality or being realistic or whatever it might be. We've got to have such faith and such courage and such bravery today. And that doesn't equate to negligence, but it is something of a substance of God that he wants to give to his people where, where we are those and we're known for it, that we're not afraid we're full of love. We're full of the presence of God. And this is what, this is what Jesus said. When you're consumed with sometimes the, end, the eschatology, the end times, remember, the disciples were afraid. John 20, it says that they were in a room and it was locked after Jesus had died. He rose from the dead. He shows up in the room and he says, peace. He says, peace. He gives them peace. The shalom of God silences the turmoil. God's peace will silence the turmoil. And he ministers to him. And before he ascends, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 6, the disciples ask him this question. They said, is it now that you're going to come into your kingdom? Is it at this time? Why did they ask that question? Partly because they were afraid. They were under an oppression. They were living under an oppression, and they were suffering, and they wanted to come out from under that. Are you going to come into your kingdom now? And this is what Jesus says to them. This is Jesus' eschatology for us in this season. It is not for you to know the time or the hour which the Father is fixed by His own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. God told us what to do 2,000 years ago for seasons like this. The question for us is, are we doing that? People get caught up in this eschatology, and it's all based on fear. They're looking for the next person to tell them the thing that they cannot know. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. Maybe soon, maybe not, but I know what we're supposed to do. And if we're not going to do that, we cease to carry the purpose of the local church in the season that we're in. And I can guarantee you when the church stops doing what Jesus said, we are in some ways living under this canopy of fear. And we've got to come out from under that and we've got to pray and we've got to give and we've got to go and commit ourselves to carrying the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus, which is the only thing right now that is going to satisfy what our world is looking for. It is the message that the world needs. And that is not a misplaced optimism. That is the truth. It is the gospel that is going to change our world. I want to pray to that end. I would have lost hope had I not believed that I would see. Let's pray that God would help us to see and lay hold of what he has. Would you stand as I pray? With great faith, hope, and expectation, pray with me. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for the word of God. We thank you, Lord, that as we gather today that we are called to provoke each other to love and to good deeds, to believe you for greater things. And like the psalmist said, like King David wrote, in a time of his life where whatever he was facing, I, I assume that we are facing something that might be similar, maybe not in fullness, but in part, that we could say with him, I would have despaired, I would have been hopeless had I not believed something that I would see in the future, the unfolding future, the goodness of my God in the land of the living. And so we join that prayer today, and we ask you to give us eyes of faith. We ask you to help us to stay focused on the things that are important right now, that we would be carriers of the gospel, that we would disciple people, that, we, that you would raise up Northwest Church to be those people, 
We are those people in a time where everyone is looking to be satisfied and to have what's going on the inside, the turmoil, to be silenced. We know that it's your peace, it's your shalom, it's your gospel that satisfies and silences the turmoil that we are facing and that the world is giving themselves to. Give us eyes of faith. Give us a heart full of faith. Help us to walk in what you are doing and nothing less. That we would not look to the right or to the left. We would be callous to the voices of fear in this season. I pray that we would be callous to those voices right now. And we would lay hold of greater levels of trust, far more than we've ever known. So come, Lord Jesus, and invade all of our soul. Every area of it, have it all. It's for you and for your glory that we pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Northwest Church, go to our website, nwcfoursquare.org, or download our app in any of the app stores by searching Northwest Foursquare Church.